Good morning. So thank you for coming this morning. Um, my name is Gina Sharp, for those of you whom I've not met. And it's a pleasure to be here with you. So what we do on these Sunday mornings is um, we do some sitting and uh, then I'll, I'll give a small talk and uh, we'll see what's on your minds. So can I just see some hands for anybody who's new? Welcome. Thank you for coming. So arrive here molecule by molecule. Allow all parts of your being to arrive on your seat. Might help to take a couple of deep breaths just to slow the breath down. Just to know that in meditation there is no, um, nothing that should happen. The very nature of meditation is that whatever arises, we learn how to work with. And usually that's by recognizing what's arrived, accepting it, relating to it with interest and not thinking this is me or mine. Just a very gentle way of being with however things are right now in this moment. So if you would like to, you can close your eyes gently. If not, because some people have learned how to meditate with eyes open, just allow the eyes to rest gently on a spot in front of you about four feet without looking around or becoming interested in what's happening in the environment too much. Although from time to time sounds may appear and it's perfectly fine to just notice that they're here. You don't have to worry about the origin of them or who's making them happen or how they're happening, but just noticing hearing so that for whatever is happening externally, we can meet it with the same uh, gentle acceptance as we do whatever is happening internally. So thoughts may appear, images may appear, sensations may appear in the body, Emotions may appear, and they are all met equally with a recognition of what's happening, an acceptance of what's happening, interest, and non-identification. And you'll notice that there's an acronym there, recognition R, acceptance A, interest I, and non-identification, RAIN that may help you to remember this new way of training the mind. So Joseph Goldstein last night reminded us that this practice is a practice of cultivating the mind. And how do we do that? We do that by shifting, shifting how we relate to phenomena 
from our old habits to some new habits. And of course, taking on new habits, you know, is not really that easy. So to not set a high bar of what should happen or how it should happen, but just gently shifting to this new way of relating to experience. And over time, as the Buddha said, drop by drop, a bucket gets filled. So each time we meet experience with mindfulness and awareness, with this recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification, we're shifting the way we relate to phenomena, not only in meditation, but in daily life. So notice that you are an embodied being sitting on this seat. What does it feel like to be embodied? So when the buttocks meets the seat, there's pressure. Notice that pressure. Your seat may be hard or soft. Notice the hardness or softness. The body has a temperature, so you may be feeling cool or warm or hot or cold. Notice that. And notice how it all holds together somehow. That feelings that course through the body are coherent. The sensations that are coursing through the body are not disconnected. So when you notice that, when you notice the vibratory nature of the body, the pressure that's created by just contact with your cushion, you're noticing air element. When you notice the hardness or softness of the seat or of the floor beneath you, if you're sitting on a chair and your feet touch the floor, you may notice the hardness or softness. That's earth element. When you notice the temperature of the body, you're noticing fire element. And when you notice the cohesion of the body, you're noticing water element. So these experiences are elemental. And of course, it's possible to just notice if you don't want to get so refined for the moment, that there is a body, that all of these experiences that we have are contained at least primarily or um, preliminarily in this body, these flesh and bones and skeleton and this physical being. So just, I'll be silent for a moment and you can just be with that. Just be present for your physicality.
and accept what's there with interest and non-identification. So perhaps there's tingling in the hands or the feet. Perhaps there's an unpleasant sensation in the back or the shoulders or the spine or the sacrum, the hips. Or maybe there are pleasant feelings, pleasant sensations. And as well as being physical beings, we are also emotional beings. We have an emotional body. So just check in right now with how the emotional body is. Is there joy, sorrow, depression, elation, evenness, equanimity, sadness, sorrow, happiness, depression, curiosity, fear, anxiety, hope, or neutrality. And can you meet that with the same recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification? Just notice if there is a corresponding feeling in the body. So if there is happiness in the heart, is that manifested anywhere in the body? How do you feel that in the body? Because they're not disconnected. And are there thoughts in the mind? And can you meet those with the same recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification? So that we're not engaging in those thoughts, we're not holding on to those thoughts, we're not believing those thoughts necessarily. But just notice there is thinking. Allow the thoughts to arise and pass away, as they always do. We don't have to give them any steam or momentum, and we also don't have to repress them or get rid of them. Just allow them to arise and pass as they will. What you may notice is that there is a kind of um, dispersal of energy, that the mind may be uh, jumping from one thing to the next, or there may be emotions that are uh, roiled up. And all of that can be held in a large space that allows what is true to arise and pass away without our having to become engaged or embroiled in them. That's the essence and nature of meditation, is that we are 
here, present, for what is happening. But we're in the middle, we're neither giving them uh, energy, nor repressing them. So we're not pulling anything and trying to make anything happen or continue. And at the same time, we are not repressing anything that's arising or trying to get rid of it. We're simply in the middle. Being able to observe what is true in this moment. And what may be helpful for you is to notice the breath. That as we sit here, as embodied, alive beings, that the body is breathing. This may be very helpful for you to gather the energy of the mind if it feels scattered, to take the attention, gather the energy of the attention and point it towards the breath. And when we aim the attention at the breath, it's not a, the breath in general, but very specifically this in-breath right now. And we, and we keep the attention on it from its beginning through its middle and to its end. And as the breath pauses, we gather the energy again and we point it towards the, the out-breath this out-breath, not the last one or the next one, but this one. And we approach it with the same recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. We simply are present for the experience of breathing. You may notice the breath at the nostrils, at the chest, or the belly. Choose one of those places wherever it's easiest for you to find the breath. But it's not a it's not a contest, and it's not a um, it's not a compulsion. It's simply a way to gather the energy of the attention, to gather the energy of the mind, and aim it. But you may notice that because of our habits, the mind is scattered. It may not cooperate so easily in the beginning. So we recognize that, accept it, investigate it, and not identify with it. It's not we're bad meditators or we should be able to do better or any of those judgments or commentaries. Just a simple knowing of how things are. Oh, the mind is thinking or the heart is filled with anxiety. What does that feel like? Become interested in it. What does it feel like for the mind to think? So we're not judging it or trying to make it something different, just noticing it. And when the, uh, whatever the predominant experience is, other than the breath has lessened or become not so predominant, then just return the attention to the breath. 
so that your meditation becomes a dance of attention. And the effort is neither too loose nor too tight. So we're not bearing down on the breath, but at the same time we're using enough energy and effort so that we are aware of the breath. Our attention is pointed towards the breath. And all of this is done with gentleness, kindness, compassion, non-judgmental awareness. When the attention loses its way to not judge or comment, just notice that the attention's been off, it's been called away. And simply come back. It's called by sound. Notice hearing. Whatever becomes the predominant experience. Meet it. With no resistance and no struggle. Beginning again is the essence of meditation, coming back over and over and over and over again. This is the training of the mind, a very important moment of mindfulness when you are aware of where the mind is, of what it's put its attention on. So we have a few minutes for any questions or comments about the practice itself. Yes, please. So um, her question, in case anybody didn't hear it, is that sometimes she feels as if the breath is the background and there are other experiences that are the foreground and it feels like forcing to come back to the breath. So. First of all, and, she, and you said you feel as if you can, you're aware of both at the same time. Yeah. So it, it brings up a really important point, which is that 
and this is scientific as well as what the Buddha said, is that consciousness admits one thing at a time. But the thing is that it's happening so fast that it feels like it's happening at the same time. So our consciousness is only capable of being with one thing, but it may be moving so quickly we, don't, we, we, we think it's both. So what happens is as we place our attention on the breath and we use the breath as the anchor, it's not as if we're going flatline, right? And nothing, you know, we're now dead except for the breath, right? So there are no feelings, sensations, sounds, etc. So of course there's natural experience that's still happening, but we've placed our attention on this object. And, and it's interesting because if we're reading a book and we're really absorbed in it, all kinds of stuff can be going on around us, you know, or, you know, somebody can be cooking in the kitchen or, you know, the phone's ringing or, and yet we're so absorbed in the book that we may not even notice what else is, is happening or it really is just far away. But somehow when, we've, when we are intentional about the, this one object, it feels like so much else is happening and we can't, um, you know, the, the, we're off balance because all of these other things are happening. So just to notice that. But also to notice that, that ex- certain experiences become predominant from time to time. So if you're reading a book and you're really absorbed in it and, you know, there's a loud bang, you know, you'll, your, your attention will be taken away from the book and into the bang. And that's quite a natural thing. And it's a survival thing, right? We're hardwired for that. So it's not like it's a mistake, as you know. Um, and what you can do is, whatever is calling the attention, it's perfectly fine to be with that. So, for instance, when the bells rang, you know, it's kind of hard to ignore them, right? You know, they're really asserting themselves. So to be intentional about, okay, so there's now hearing, and that's the predominant experience. So get really um, focused on the predominant experience. And, the, and notice that there's a journey to that experience. So the, so the bells arise, and, you, you know, you could even notice, and I certainly notice now after years of meditation how they sort of come out of nowhere, right? And they just arise. And then and it, they take over the hearing. So consciousness in Buddhist thought is of six types. It's hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, seeing, thinking, right? So now the consciousness, the hearing consciousness is what's become predominant. So notice what it's like to hear, right? And there may be other things happening, like I don't like those bells. They're loud and they're nasty and they're bringing me away from my breath, right? Or, oh, beautiful bells. I love the sound of those bells. So notice that too, how, you know, either the aversion to it or the neutrality or the attraction to it. And then notice that they ari- the sound arises and then it kind of falls away and suddenly there's silence again. Notice that. Don't miss the ending of that. So it's now ended. So hearing is no, no longer being called. So we return to the breath. And that's what I mean by a dance. So there's no conflict because, damn it, I was right on the breath and now those bells have come up, right? It's like, don't struggle. So that's what's happened. 
because the the point of meditation is not to be a great meditator. The point of meditation is to train the mind so that we can bring that trained mind into our lives, right? And so we're learning how not to struggle with whatever experience arises. So, so, and if you're seeing a struggle, notice that too. Oh, struggle, struggle, struggle. What does struggle feel like in the body? What's the thought in the mind? Oh, you know, I need to be a good meditator. Or, you know, and, and just notice how that kind of arises all by itself. It's not like you're making it happen. So, so much is going on just by that one experience of, oh, there are two things going on here and I don't know where to put the mind. You know, don't struggle with that. So whatever is calling the mind, whatever is calling the attention, that's where it's going to be. So if you're trying to struggle back to the breath, that's a struggle. So you, you just, and you can even, but okay, so if that's what's happening, so notice that struggle. What does that feel like? Does it make the body feel great or does it make it feel tight and holding and restricted? So that you're noticing not so much the experiences that are happening, but you're noticing your relationship to those experiences. Because that's what makes the difference between happiness and suffering. Is not whether the bells are arising. It's whether I'm miserable because the bells are arising, because I wanted to be on my breath, right? That's what makes us miserable. The bells are, you know, they don't care, right? The bells are happening, right? They, they didn't say, I'm going to come in and, you know, I'm going to disturb Joyce's meditation, right? They just, that's what happened. They just kind of spontaneously arose. So, no, so all of that can be noticed without judgment. How you struggle with it or how, you know, you want it to be a particular way and it's not that way and how that feels and what does it feel like in the body. So every moment of our experience is rich with information. And when we can quiet the mind enough, to see what that information is, some clarity arises, some wisdom arises, and, and the training of the mind and heart as to, oh, what makes me suffer? What makes suffering end? That's, you know, that's the essence of our practices. Where is suffering? What causes the suffering? How does the suffering end? And how, how can I be with it so that it will end? Right? And it's all very gentle and kind. Thank you for the question. It's an important one. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's only a problem if you make it one. Right? And, and that's an important insight. It's only an, it's, everything is just a problem if we make it one. Right. Good. You could have hated the bells too. It's okay. Either way, it's just like what does hate feel like, and what does love feel like? Right. That's what we're doing. Is we're just being here. What did Joseph say last night? He said, you know, the the. Um, I think it's Munindra Ji, his first teacher, said, you know, if you want to know. Um, if, if you want to, to have some wisdom and understand the body and mind, sit down and observe it, right? That's all we're doing, is we're just, we're allowing the mind to become still enough that we can see it, 
we, we can't see it when we're all embroiled in, in, you know, trying to make experience look a particular way or feel a particular way, right? Or think that it should be a particular way. And usually when we think it should be a particular way, we think we're not that, right? Whatever way we think it should be, we're not it, right? You know, there's that, all that self-judgment and, and uh, uncompassion with how we are. So, so just being able to sit and be with things as they are creates a kind of clarity and kindness and a shift of how we relate to our experience. Thank you. Greg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so it can be an act of will, right? Or it can be just where the attention falls. And maybe, there, maybe that distinction isn't useful, I don't know. But if I, if I think about my own experience, it's just, oh, the, bells, the sound has arisen, and I just label, and the mind, I, uh, the, the mind just labels it hearing. And then, to, and then the, that experience kind of fills the entire body and mind right in that moment. And the, it's not like my breath has stopped, right, because I'm not paying attention to it. It still continues, but it's not the predominant experience. Do you understand? And so it doesn't have to be an act of will, it can be just how things present. And also to notice how there's a belief in the mind that it's an act of will, that we're directing experience or we're directing attention. And, and I'm not saying it's true or it's not true, but to just notice that and see, and see if you can investigate, what is that, is that what's really happening here? Is there a choice that's being made? Or is it simply that experience is presenting itself and the attention just goes to it? Because that's valuable information too, is how does all this work? How does it work? And does it, is it a problem for you to decide whether or not it's an act of will? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Oh, so in life, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there's this issue of, you know, how did this happen, right? I was minding my own business and suddenly, wham, you know, you get smacked by something, right? Um, and so an investigation and meditation of what's going on is a really interesting one um, because it can be all kinds of different, all kinds of different answers in all kinds of different situations. And where do we, so it feels to me like where that's leading is 
where do we assert our will and where do we just lay back and let things unfold? And that's an, it's an important question and, and a kind of very subtle um, qualitative difference in our lives. How do, we, how do we simply allow things to unfold and where do we interfere with the unfolding of things because we don't like where they're going or, or, or you know, and where is it a kind of um, chutzpah to think that we can direct life? And where is it appropriate to step in when things are going a way we think, you know, could be improved? It's, it's a really, that's a really great investigation. Is it really? Woo, see that? <laughs> you know, we probably all had these, we probably all had these, this imagination about, you know, these big beautiful bells, I certainly did, right? These big beautiful bells peeling and just to notice that also, thank you for that, because how deluded we can be about what it is we think we're hearing or seeing or smelling or thinking or saying or, you know, all of that. How deluded we can be because the mind makes up all these stories about what's actually going on, which may be completely false, and yet we totally buy into it and believe it. Thank you. Behind you, and that will be the last one, yeah. And your name? Eloise. Eloise. Uh huh. For how long? So is it that the breath stops, or is it that it goes into the background in terms of your attention? Hmm. So that's ah. So that's like a that's like another emanation of the question that Greg asked about will, you know. So we're going so far as to think that we're making our body breathe or not breathe. Good luck with that. Right? That would be an, a full time job, right? If we really had to like say breathe every time, and the breath really did stop, and we really did think we have to make it happen. That would be a problem. But I don't think that's what's really happening. So it's interesting to, to really be interested in that. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And to, you know, that whole idea that if we're not making it happen, it's not happening, down to even the breath. Look at that. Look at how the mind is, right? It really believe, we really believe that we're in charge. Ha! Huh. <laughs> Right? We really believe we're in charge, even of our autonomic functions. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, so investigate that. That's a really rich investigation. So I'm going to give you about um, five minutes just to uh, get up and move your bodies. And there's a, there's a room in the back if you want to do walking meditation. So I'm talk a little bit about... Um, mindfulness today. We tend to 
give a lot of teachings about a lot of things, but the practice of mindfulness is really um, so seminal and so central to what we do here. <clears throat> so you may or may not uh, be familiar with the basic teaching of the Buddha, which is that there are four noble truths, four truths that are ennobling when we, uh, when we come to them and understand them and um, understand how to work with them. <clears throat> and essentially the, the four truths are that there is what's called dukkha or uh, unsatisfactoriness or difficulty. Sometimes you'll see it translated as suffering. I don't like to use suffering so much anymore because I think that um, the word is overused and sometimes we, we don't really, we, we think that we have to look for some kind of extreme experience. But in fact, when we start to um, examine our experience, what we notice is, and I've certainly noticed it for myself, is that there's this feeling of um, that being alive doesn't ever quite get perfect <laughs> as much as we try, right? And somehow we think that there is some perfection out there that, as I said before, you know, it definitely exists, but we're not it. And, and I think that that's kind of dukkha, the dukkha that the Buddha was referring to. The, the, the roots of the word dukkha mean, uh, and dukkha is a Pali, uh, Pali word, which is the, the language that the Buddha's teachings are all um, presented in as the basic teachings, um, is that it's like a, a, the wheel of a, of a cart, and there's a, there's a hub, and the axle is supposed to fit in the hub, and it doesn't quite fit in the hub. And, and that, therefore, you can imagine, if the wheel isn't fitting perfectly on the cart, uh, I'm sorry, in, in, the, in the hub, then the, as you go over roads, it, you get a very bumpy ride. So I think that's what the Buddha was pointing to, that life is a bumpy ride, right? or Scott Peck's book that starts with Life is Hard and become, be, became a bestseller because he kind of told the truth about it. So that's the first noble truth, that life is hard, or it's dukkha, or it's difficult, or it's unsatisfactory, or it's a bumpy ride. And then the second truth, that there's a cause for that. And uh, that cause is that the mind clings to an idea of perfection, or an idea of the way things should be so when things are really good, in our estimation anyway, we want to hold on to it, we want to make it last because we think, oh, I finally got it, right? I can, I can do this life, right? And so if I can just hold on to this for long enough, <laughs> life will be perfect. Or, oh, Jesus, I'm not doing this really well, I'm suffering, I'm, you know, you know, my, my, lover just left me or I just lost my job or you know things are not going well or I have this experience from my childhood that I can't get over or whatever it is and I want to get rid of it right because this shouldn't be happening if it wasn't happening my life would be perfect I would be great everything would be wonderful so we want to push away what feels unpleasant or difficult 
So that's the clinging mind that the Buddha is referring to, that we're, we're, we're clinging to or trying to hold on to what feels good. And the reason we suffer from that is because everything is impermanent. So things are always changing. And when we try to hold on to things that are changing, we suffer. Or an unpleasant arises. So life, you may have noticed, is a mixture of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So when things that are unpleasant arise, if we try to make them go away or make them not arise, that's a struggle again, and suffering happens. (coughs) Or they're neutral, and because they don't have a charge, we completely ignore them. We don't even notice that that's part of our lives. And, you know, I I think that that's the one that's probably most difficult to recognize because when we're ignoring things, we're in a kind of deluded state. And because we're in a deluded state, we don't even know what's really happening, right? So that's the definition of delusion is we don't know what's happening, so we don't even know we're deluded. And so um, we may even prefer unpleasant because it has a charge, right? There's something happening. So he said that you know these these this clinging mind that it has greed, hatred, and delusion. So greed for the pleasant, hatred for the unpleasant, and delusion for the uh, the ignorance of the neutral is the cause of the of uns- of unsatisfactoriness or the suffering that happens as a result of that unsatisfactoriness. And the fourth truth is that there is a path that there is a way that we can. Um, uh, work with these first three truths. And what he said about the first truth, it needs to be understood. That it needs to really, life as unsatisfactory needs to be understood. We need to understand that. We need to understand that first truth. And the second truth, that the clinging mind is the cause of it. That the clinging mind needs to be abandoned. And the third truth, that it can it can end this unsatisfactoriness, this dukkha, this suffering can actually end. That's the good news, right? Buddhism is usually saddled with just the first two, but there there are two last ones. And the third, that um, there's cessation, he said, should be realized. So we need to realize cessation of unsatisfactoriness or dukkha. And the fourth, that there's a path. So he, he set out what's called the Noble Eightfold Path, there's that recording again. <laughs> eh. <laughs> it's just a recording. It's not really bells. Right? See the mind? And um, that the fourth truth, that there is a path, is, he said, there are three limbs to this eightfold path. There's um, wisdom and living a life of virtue or integrity and uh, meditate and the cultivation of the mind heart so the first wisdom means that we we cultivate a mind that has a wise aspiration or intention and that we um, we cultivate the mind so deeply that it has wise understanding that's the first limb of the of the eightfold path those two and then the middle three, that we live a life of integrity, which means that we live a life that has um, wise act in, in which we are acting wisely, 
we, our livelihood is wise and our speech is wise. So those are the second three, wise action, wise livelihood, and wise speech. And then uh, the third limb, that of meditation, that we cultivate the mind. And he said the three aspects of that are wise action, I'm sorry, wise mindfulness, wise effort, and wise concentration. And of course, I, I have to pedagogically say, that, say those in a kind of linear way, but actually if you can picture the, the, the path as a wheel rather than as a straight line, because they all interact and interweave, and when there's wise understanding, then a life of integrity becomes self-evident. And when there's a life of integrity, that supports meditation. And when we're meditating, the wisdom arises and a life of integrity becomes more integrated. So, um, so just to think of it as, as, as that eight-spoked wheel that you sometimes see the Dharma represented as rather than, a, rather than a straight line. So this morning I wanted to talk about just one aspect, one of the eight steps, which is wise mindfulness. Um, and I think it's, it's particularly helpful um, to come back to that teaching, which we don't do often because, you know, when we're practicing and we're meditating and we're getting instructions, we really um, don't spend a lot of time reflecting on mindfulness as we could. Um, and so a lot of uh, misunderstanding arises with respect to it. So there's a saying that the gate is narrow and those who find it are few. Do you know where that's from? Anyone? Yeah, so he said the Gospel of Matthew. He said the Gospel of Matthew. So it's a, it's a Christian uh, saying from, the, from, from Jesus that um, there, are, there are few that find uh, the way. And when the Buddha was enlightened, um, the, night, the, the morning of his enlightenment, he said he couldn't possibly teach what he had taught, what he had learned, what he had seen on the, the night when he went through the whole um, uh, experience of awakening because he felt it was so subtle and so um, refined. That, on, that nobody would really understand it. And the, the legend or the story is that a Brahma god came to him and said, no, 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 you have to teach this. This is really important. And he said, um, there are those with just a little dust in their eyes, so you can find those people and teach to them. So you who are here are the ones who have a little dust in your eyes. So you found the narrow gate by being here. So there may be doubt, you know, what am I doing here? Is this really uh, for me? So, but what's true is that Vipassana practice, this practice that we do is not complicated. It's simply full awareness in the present moment. So these three aspects of the, eight, of the uh, meditative aspect of the path are full, which is samadhi, a kind of um, uh, concentrated concentration, if you know what I mean. Um, it's, a, it's a way of 
distilling the mind down to its essence, down to its essential being, so that samadhi becomes a, a place of rest in the, in the mind. And awareness, so full awareness, is um, uh, this is the mindfulness aspect of the path. This ability to really to, to be with what's happening and to know what's happening right now in this present moment. And the present moment is the effort. So full awareness in the present moment. Full uh, samadhi awareness or, or concentration, awareness, mindfulness in the present moment, the effort. So these, the, these are the three qualities in the meditation section of the path. So what, we've, what happens is uh, it's a kind of eccentricity, a wandering away from the center of this wheel that we're talking about that causes our suffering. And so Bo- the Buddha was describing from the outside view the qualities of Nibbana in this, uh, in this aspect of the path. And these are qualities of the Buddha's mind. Quali- or let's say not the Buddha's mind, but the Bodhi mind. And this Bodhi mind is our natural birthright. This is not something that only some people can have and other people can't, or some people know how to do and other people don't know how to do. But these qualities that approximate the mind and heart of of a Buddha. So this mindfulness is the heart of the meditative path. And we pay attention, clear attention, to what is in the present moment. The Dalai Lama, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, this moment is the only place where we can experience love. So awareness is not choosing, not judging, not evaluating, but simple, bare attention to what is right now. And we forget how to do this. As Joyce was saying, where she moved there. No, you didn't move. That we forget how to do it, right? We forget that it's, it's simply allowing what is here to be here. And we get lost in concepts about reality, right? We get lost in some idea about what we think is happening. Like Eloise, where did you go? There you are. Um, that we, we get lost in the idea, we get, we get a conceptual idea about what's happening. Like, I'm having to make my breath happen. Right? And it's not that there's anything wrong with that, or there's anything wrong with us for feeling that way. Because it's just the habit of the mind. It's how we've developed over time by all of the conditioning that we've received, whether it's from our teachers, or our parents, or the culture, or our siblings, or our peers or you know all of or television or the internet all of the ways in which we're being fed constantly ideas and concepts about reality and we get lost in them so Bhante Gunaratana who's a wonderful Sri Lankan monk who's um, getting on in years now but he's still alive in uh, in Virginia said because we unknowingly perceive ourselves and the world around us through thought patterns that are limited, habitual, and conditioned by delusion, our perceptual, 
our perception and mental conceptualization of reality is scattered and confused. So just think about that for a moment. One, and he's kind of reflecting back what, what the Buddha said about our relationship to reality. And what he said is, whatever you think, it's other than that. I know, I, when I heard that the first time, it just, it's like a light went on in my head, right? That whatever we're thinking, we should really examine, because reality is not that. Reality is something else. We, um, we negotiate and we navigate reality through our concepts, which is fine, as long as we realize that that's what we're doing. So Picasso, a, a patron of his, said, "Your paintings don't represent reality. Why don't you, you know, why don't you just represent reality when you when you draw? You know, it would be so much more um, alive." So Picasso said, "Do you have a picture of your wife?" And the man said, "Yes, I do." And he pulled out his picture of his wife, and Picasso looked at this, looked at it, and said, "Oh, your wife is small and flat." So meditation's like a bipolar condition, right? We're either in awareness or we're not. And just to notice how we go back and forth in both Eloise and Joyce who were talking about that. So everywhere that we've ever put our mind and heart has had an impact on our mind and heart. Everything. There is nothing that's happened to us in our lives that haven't had an impact, small or large. So when we sit, that karmic wave begins to assert itself. Right? Because everything that we've done, everything that we've thought, everything that we've said, every experience that we've had has had some uh, impact on us. There's a chant in, uh, that they do in the monasteries every single day, which begins with all beings are heirs to their karma. So everything that we've been involved with has had some kind of karmic impact on us. And it's not, and it's not a kind of, you know, shaking a finger at you and saying, you know, be good because everything's had an impact on you. Our, 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 this human life is a mixture of all kinds of qualities and experiences. It's what makes it rich and it's also what makes, makes it hard. So all of our intentional actions live through a force of karmic momentum. So whatever we cling to, karma will assert itself through that. So when we meditate, we take away our defenses and we begin to see that karmic force. We, we open ourselves to the karmic force of our hearts and minds. So sometimes when we start to meditate, it's not so pleasant, right? Because so much of what's happened in our lives before starts to, um, that we've, that we've compressed or suppressed or pushed down or pushed away or said, I don't want to think about that anymore because our minds become clear and somewhat translucent, that whole karmic force starts to assert itself. 
So there are many water images in the, in the suttas where the Buddha talks about the action of mind as, and where he says the difficulties of the mind are like influxes or inflows. He said there's a, there are tides of conceiving or oceans of existence. So if you, if you can think of it as uh, water flowing in and out. So we get regrets and remorse and blame about the past and fear and anxiety about the future. So at first, um, mindfulness doesn't seem to have a lot of effect on that karmic tide, right? Because we, we, we start meditating, we get up, you know, however much we do it, we get up and we feel like, oh, you know, not, not much has changed. But what, what we begin to notice, those of you who've been practicing for a while probably already know this, this is not news to you that after a while, after you've been practicing for a while, you do begin to see shifts and changes, not because you've directed them or you said, this is how I'm going to change or this is what I'm going to do. Maybe, you know, sometimes we do have those intentions. But a lot of the time, what it is, is this ability to be present for what's true gives some clarity to the mind. And that clarity is really a shift of how we relate to experience. And that sh- just that shift that happens changes everything or changes a lot or it starts to meet the karmic tide. And in the beginning it feels so overwhelming and so hard and so harsh. And yet after a while we begin to see some shifts and changes. So mindfulness is capable of growing up but it needs to be nurtured. And that's why as teachers, we're constantly encouraging a constant and consistent practice. Because we know that, as the Buddha said, drop by drop a bucket gets filled. And so over time, each time we bring mindfulness to what's happening in the present moment to the mind and body, it has an effect. So that eventually it starts to meet this karmic uh, tide of momentum. So we need to help it to grow and to give it loving kindness and compassion. Bhante G again. Mindfulness helps us to freeze the frame of the rapidly passing motion picture that we were talking about so that we can become aware of sensations and experiences as they are without the coloration of socially conditioned responses or habitual reactions. So how does mindfulness really feel? To notice that when you're practicing, to really step back and notice how it feels in the body, how it feels in the mind, and how it feels in the heart, the three centers. And it's important that you do this, because when you do that, you're kind of marking it, and the mind is taking note. And that then gives you some um, uh, encouragement to continue the practice. If you think that nothing's happening, it's really hard to keep a practice going. Have you noticed that? That sometimes you just get so, you think, oh, you know, it's, you know, I'm still the same old me. I can't stand the same old me, right? You know, I really, I need to fix this. So there may be this delusion that there's something that needs to be fixed. 
when in fact there isn't anything that needs to be fixed. So we get, we get uh, discouraged. But then if you think about this karmic wave that has taken all of your life to build, then why do you think it should recede or be met in such a short time? So get in touch with the feeling of mindfulness. Because the summoning of awareness comes from a really, really, really deep place. And the more we do it, the easier it is to find that deep place. So what begins to happen is we begin to see what it's like to actually imitate Bodhi mind, the Buddha's awakened mind. And you've, I know if you've been practicing for even a short time, you've had those moments. You've had those moments where there's just this natural awareness, just this natural being, this way of just being here in whatever condition the mind and heart and body are. So if you're wanting you're thinking the wholesomeness is supposed to be there and it's not and the un, and that um, the whole the unwholesome isn't that's not equanimity that's not the bodhi mind because awareness is not enthralled by either the negative or the positive or the unwholesome or the wholesome or the skillful or the unskillful however you want to language it Equanimity is being totally here in the midst of whatever is true. It sees both with equal ease, both poles that we consider. So the first two noble truths, as I said, is always balanced by the third and the fourth. And we're kind of the fulcrum of those four truths. So our practice should be like that. And we can delight in the wholesome. It doesn't mean that we say, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. And appreciate it as a sign of our growth. And not push away the unwholesome or the unskillful, but really use it as the mud for your lotus. No mud, no lotus. No mud, no lotus. No manure, no crops. Right? And mindfulness is really wholeheartedly embracing what is true. So that wholeheartedness and that embrace is a kindness. It's metta. Metta is totally within the wholesome. Is there anybody here who doesn't know what metta means? Ah, hi. So metta is a Pali word for loving kindness. And it's a really important aspect of our practice and should never be um, forgotten or put down when we're meditating. We bring kindness along in our hearts and we bring it first to this one, to this being who's sitting here on this cushion. So that when we get up from our cushions, that's who we bring into our lives and our, our practice of extending loving kindness to every being that we meet and every and all of the and all of the world is fueled by and is 
um, fed by our kindness for ourselves. And we practice that in meditation. We practice that in mindfulness. So that it doesn't, it's not some um, false persona that we put on when we meet the world, but it really comes from the cultivation of the heart that happens as we cultivate mindfulness. So it's a quality of friendliness. Do you remember years ago um, that, uh, um, I don't remember what the occasion was, but there was this actor named uh, Roberto Bernini. I even forget what movie he was in, but he got a... a cat. Life is Beautiful, right. And uh, he was getting some kind of medal from Bill Clinton when Clinton was president. And he walked across the stage, I'll never forget this moment, and he jumped into the arms of Bill Clinton and he said, oh, I'm so happy to meet you, right? <laughs> and Clinton was like, oh, you know, what's, what's going on? But it was really, it was such a beautiful moment and it really reminded me of Metta. It was, he was completely embraced by that moment. And can we meet every moment like that? I'm so happy to meet you. So in the Dhammapada, it says, don't ignore the accumulation of wholesomeness. By the gradual falling of raindrops, a jar is filled. No moment of mindfulness is wasted. They fill up the jar. So our fetters, the things that hold us down, that, that keep us bound, weaken under the influence of meditation practice. It's, um, it can't be helped. It can't be helped when we practice in this way with mindfulness, with this awareness of the present moment that's kind and compassionate. It happens naturally. Our fetters fall away. We don't have to make them happen. So it's the quality of knowing our experience, really knowing it well and not preferring one over the other. And when I say that, I don't mean that if preferences arise that there's something wrong with you or that your practice isn't perfect. But it's a knowing these preferences and knowing where they lead. That's what's important. And this knowing is an aspect of wisdom, that first uh, step on the path. So seeing things as they are in this moment is the first step towards wisdom. So see how the path is now bending back on itself. So each experience, one of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, had a very simple formulation which a lot of us have found very helpful. And that is when something arises, say, oh, like the peeling of the bells, hearing is like this, right? Or a pain in the knee, oh, stabbing, shifting, itching, scratching, burning is like this. So that everything is met with the understanding, oh, this experience is like this. But it's a, it's a, it's a sincere understanding, not an understanding that has an agenda, right? So if I really say it's like this, it'll go away. <laughs> Won't work, doesn't work. But a real sincere 
ability to jump into the arms of your experience like Bernini into the arms of Clinton, right? Oh, sadness is like this. Anxiety is like this. Fear is like this. Anger is like this. Hatred is like this. Love is like this. However it is. And so the noting practice gives you a verbal cue of what's happening and strengthens the wisdom quality. So recording of the bells is like this. Right? I'll never forgive you for telling me that. Right? <laughs> so sati and panya, sati meaning mindfulness and panya wisdom, are often used together and, and the, the actual discourse of the Buddha um, in which he talks about uh, mindfulness, he introduces mindfulness, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta. So, Sati and Panya, wisdom and mindfulness. So, a mindful mind becomes precise and penetrating and balanced and uncluttered. So, it's, a, it's like a mirror that's reflecting whatever is before it without wishing it it away or wishing it would stay, so letting go of the struggle. So I'm going to close with um, a poem from Rumi who some, that some of you may have heard. Rumi is a, um, a Sufi poet from the 17th century, I think. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. It's a beautiful way of expressing mindfulness, the ability to hold, hold it all, this, this life, this life of 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows in a warm and large embrace. Thank you. So I'm wondering if you have any questions, Jack. So the question is about intention and whether intention gets you off the hook, even if you harm somebody, right? Is that a pretty good summary of what you're saying? So Jack's a doctor, so he's using doctor, um, doctor uh, images or metaphors. So car- one of the things that um, the Buddha tells us is that karma is so complicated, we can never understand it unless we have a bodhi mind. So just to warn you that my bodhi mind isn't fully developed, right? And so I don't understand karma completely. And I'm not sure that 
anybody does maybe other than the Buddha because on the night of his awakening he saw all of the ways in which we've gone from life to life doing the same things and wishing for happiness and not getting it. So there are three aspects to karma. There's the intention, there's the act itself, and then there's the result, the, the effect, and that's called karma vipaka. Karma, the word karma actually means action. But in our popular culture, we've taken karma vipaka to mean karma. Karma vipaka is the effect. So um, I, I suspect, I don't know, but I suspect intention is, get, does not get you off the hook. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Uh, but I think that um, it does have, a, you know, a huge bearing. So using your own metaphorical language, um, if a, two, uh, two people get killed with a knife, right? One is somebody is stabbed intentionally by somebody else because they want to kill them. That has its own karma. And the other is that a doctor takes a knife in a, sur- in a surgical operation and the patient dies. Both of them had very different intentions. But I suspect that there is some karmic accumulation. You know, you may not get prosecuted, right, as the doctor, but there is still some karmic accumulation, right? And of course, it's very complicated, right? Was the patient probably not savable anyway? Or was it through your incompetence or your negligence? Or, you know, and now I'm talking as a lawyer, right? So all of these things come into different, into different, um, you know, I'm, I'm, no, I'm seeing uh, in my mind's eye little piles of things that kind of accumulate. So... There are so many different ways. The, way, the reason the Buddha said we can never understand karma completely is because it's so complex. So your, your life intersects with your patient's life. Now, what has your patient done all of his or her life to lead to this moment? What have you done all of your life to lead to this moment? And you now intersect together. And so all of the whole karmic wave of your life and of your patient's life come together and produce some effect, right? I prefer to talk about the fact that causes and conditions always produce effects. So if you have the barometers right and the thermometer is right and the winds are right and all of the other things that are needed happen together, a snowstorm happens or an ice storm. And if you take one of, those, one of those elements out of it, the, the snowstorm stops or it doesn't happen, right? So causes and conditions are kind of naturally, hap- uh, are naturally producing effects. So whatever effects are in your life have, are, com- are coming from a complex set of causes and conditions. And can we take one of those causes and conditions out and say, ah, that's what you're going to suffer from. Or this is what you're going to get a reward from. Or, or can you look at the entire picture of your life and understand that whatever has happened before, those causes and conditions have 
brought us to this moment. So how did we all wind up in this room right now? Right? All of the causes and conditions of all of our lives have come together in this room. Right? So there's a wonderful movie, I think it's Gwyneth Paltrow who's in it, that, from years ago, that's called Sliding Doors. Thank you. In which, and I guess um, Bill Murray also did one that's called Groundhog Day where the conditions just keep changing. Like you change one condition, she misses a train and the whole day unfolds in a particular way. And then they go back and she actually makes the train and the whole day you know, just happens completely differently than when she missed that train. So every moment, so what do we learn from that? It's not that, oh my God, I can't do anything because I'm going to get karma, right? It's no. Every moment, and it goes back to what Eloise or, and, and um, you know, what you were all saying, about, Joyce were saying about, you know, am I, and, and Greg, am I making these choices? Am I making these choices? And yes, we are making choices. So in every moment, we're making choices, and we're also subject to the karmic momentum of our lives. So can we understand that clearly? Right? There are choices that we're making, and those are going to have some effect in the future. And we're also subject to the, all of the choices that we made from the past in this moment. So there's a, an accumulation that's happening all the time, and it's ever-revolving and ever-moving and ever-shifting, which is why we can practice with some confidence that, oh, this will make a difference. Right? So that if... If, I'm, if my mind is clear, my understanding is deep, my wisdom is arising and my kindness and compassion are also being brought to bear on this moment, that's the best I can do. Right? But if I'm acting out of ignorance or aversion or greed and complete ignorance of how things actually work in the world, I'm probably going to make a mess. Right? And there's going to be a lot of suffering, not only for myself, but for other people with whom I'm involved. And even if that's how we've acted right up until this moment, it can change right now. We have that ability. Because nothing ever stays the same. Nothing. And that's, that's what ties back into being not a... a, a um, a self that's inherent, that's unchanging and fixed, but a, that we're a dynamic process that's happening in every single moment in which we have choices to make. And we're also subject to all of the other choices we've made in our lives and that other people have made for us, our parents, our teachers, etc. Complicated. And yet not hopeless. Very hopeful. That you've
So how do you deal with thinking? So how do you deal with thinking? So can I make a suggestion? Is how about just noticing what it's like to think? Think. Have you ever tried that? Mm. So this is where the noting practice can be really helpful. So thinking, 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 blah, 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 blah. you know, and you, the, the whole train of associations of, you know, you start with just the sound of the bells, the recorded bells. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, suddenly it's, oh, yeah, I remember Sunday mornings. Oh, this is Sunday morning. This is so wonderful. I remember when I was five and my mom used to take me to church and, it was really kind of pleasant. And how did I wind up in this Buddhist place, right? Because I really kind of like the Christian church. But yeah, now, now I remember, oh, they really had all those rules and I couldn't stand them. And that minister, I couldn't stand him anyway in the way he used to give to And I really like Dharma talks. And, and before you know it, you're like off in some bizarre world, you know, that just had to do with bells, right? All that happened was you heard something. So in that moment, first of all, you can notice thinking, you can notice hearing, right? And maybe the, the whole train of associations won't arise, but maybe you notice hearing and it, the mind still goes, you know, blah, 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 blah. So at that point, you can just notice, oh, this is thinking. And really notice what it's like to think. Now, I'll give away a little secret, right? But I don't want you to expect it to happen. Is most of the time when you do that, my thoughts anyway, just fall over a cliff, right? But it may not happen. The thought may be so compelling or so obsessive. It's, and usually, I mean, the thing is, you know, the, I don't know how they measured it, but they said we have something like 96,000 thoughts a day. Whew, that's amazing, right? 96,000. And 98% of them are not new. I actually, I actually believe it's 99%. Right? So they're not really that interesting, most of our thoughts. But somehow we get caught by them. So if you can just notice thinking and, see, and really try to, to notice what, it's, what the experience of thinking is like. You know, and, and notice it in the body, notice it in the mind, notice it in the heart. So, so that the injunction in meditation to be with what, to be present with what is here is really, really, really precise. Anything, anything is capable of being known. All of our experience, thinking, and you know, we may think, oh, if I, if I really pay attention to this thought, it's going to carry me away. Check it out. May not happen. And if it does, and you, f and you feel as if you're whipping around that obsessive thought that you've had a million times before, then you may want to consciously make a choice and intentionally make a choice to come back to the breath and just let the thought be in the background. You, you don't want to try to get rid of it because believe me, don't think about pink elephants, right? You know what happens, right? 
So you don't want to try to get rid of it. You just want to allow it to be there and either be completely aware of it and note it or just allow it to be in the background, either way. And see what happens, right? Maybe if you come back next month on a Sunday, you can tell me what happened. So practice with that. Hmm. So we've come to the end of the morning. So um, let's close with a short loving-kindness practice and um, a dedication of merit. So we know that when we come together in this way and we practice our uh, mindfulness practices and we listen to the Dharma, we hear it, we reflect on it, and then we try to put it into action in our lives, that a field of merit or goodness is created simply by being here in the midst of this, these precious and valuable teachings. And instead of holding this goodness to ourselves, we use it as the seed for goodness in the whole world. And so we turn our attention not only to ourselves because we, we understand that our practice is not only for our benefit but for the benefit of all beings. And we do that intentionally. And we direct our attention to all beings and we send them our wishes of goodwill that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and live with ease. And we dedicate the merit and the goodness of our practice to the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. And if you wish now, you can put into our field of goodness the names of anyone whom you feel might, be, might benefit from sharing in this goodness. And you can say the names out loud. Marilyn. And so we bring all of these beings into our presence and into, our, into the center of the, this room that has all of the accumulated goodness of the practice of everyone who's been here and practiced over all of these years. And we bless every single one of these beings with that goodness, wishing for their happiness, for their peace, for their well-being, for their health and for their safety. Those who, may those who are ill be healed, those who are lonely, be comforted. May those who are bereaved have the support of loved ones. And those who are in physical distress be also comforted. We hold them all in our hearts and in this field of goodness and send it out for the blessing of all beings everywhere without exception.
Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.